Good morning. We are uh, a little thin, but we're glad to see everybody. Um, this morning, Justin Dillahay is going to uh, be bringing the word from us. Justin is a pastor at Grace Baptist Church in Hartsville, Tennessee, and uh, I'll talk more about that during the introduction um, before our worship service, but our, our church has a, a good history with uh, Grace Baptist Church going back maybe 20 years, and uh, a number of uh, the pastors there have come here to uh, uh, bring us the word, and Pastor Donnie Martin led a conference on prayer for us one time, so uh, we're delighted to uh, have Justin here among us with his wife and children, um, and uh, we've been praying for you, and uh, we're delighted that you would be here. So let me pray for us, and then uh, Justin will come. Father God, we are thankful again to gather together. Uh, Lord, we come with hope and anticipation, uh, knowing that you are here in our midst. We pray that uh, you would bless the hours that we have together. We pray that you would glorify yourself and that you would work in us and through us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would love one another, that we would welcome strangers, that we would care for the needs that are among us, and that we would please and honor you with our thoughts and our words and our deeds in this place. Uh, thank you for Justin. Thank you for Grace Baptist and your providential care for them for many, many years through many ups and downs. Uh, Lord, we are glad to be here. Open our eyes and open our ears. In the name of Jesus, amen. Good morning. Y'all have a handout? Does anybody need a handout who doesn't have one? All of my text is on that handout, so it'd be good if you had it. I'll save, since I'm on a time clock this hour, I'll save my hellos for the next hour. But our church, like yours, subscribes to the Second London Confession, the 1689 Baptist Confession, as a subordinate standard under the Scriptures. And we've been teaching through that lately, so I thought I would bring something to you that I had recently brought to my own flock. So chapter 9 in the Confession of Faith on Free Will. Now, in the old days, theologians had a way of teaching which went something like this. They would start with a question or with a thesis statement, and then the answer would either be, we affirm, we deny, or we distinguish. So, for example, was the Virgin Mary immaculately conceived? We deny. <laughs> or... Uh, is the Bible divinely inspired? We affirm. But if you were to ask the age-old question, do human beings have free will? Well, I think if you ask most Christians in America, they would say, we affirm. What, of course, obviously. And I think if you were to ask most Reformed Christians in America, they would say, we deny. Now, that's an Arminian idea. And yet... 
our confession of faith in chapter 9 answers neither we affirm nor we deny, but rather we distinguish. Meaning, well, it depends. It depends. What do you mean by free will? What kind of choices are you talking about? Uh, And perhaps most importantly, what kind of people are you talking about? Our confession recognizes that all human beings have free will in some form. But what that free will looks like is going to depend upon what state we're in. What spiritual state we're in. And that's what chapter 9 of our confession does. If you just walked in, the whole chapter is on your handout there. Chapter 9 of the confession distinguishes human nature and human freedom in four states with one intro paragraph for a total of five paragraphs. And those four states are state of innocence, state of sin, state of grace, and the state of glory. This is one of my favorite chapters in the whole confession just for providing a comprehensive biblical blueprint or rubric. When you think about it, this this uh, this innocence, sin, grace, glory... It's really just an older version of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation applied specifically to us, to human beings. And so if you've not been very familiar with these four states before today, I hope that as we talk about it, it'll be like biblically intuitive to you. And you'll be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And I hope that as we examine them, we will gain a better understanding of where we came from, what we've been saved from, who we are now as Christians, and where we're going to be, what we're going to be. Someday when Jesus returns. So let's look at these five paragraphs and these four states. Because what state you're in is going to determine what kind of freedom you have. So let's begin with paragraph one, which is a basic definition of free will. What I'm calling free will in every state or what the confession here calls natural liberty. Paragraph one is the most basic definition of free will. And before it delves into the specifics, it begins by stressing what's true about freedom for all human beings, regardless of what state we're in. So paragraph one says this, God has endued the will of man with that natural liberty and power of acting upon choice that is neither forced nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. In other words, when we do good, it's not because we're being forced. When we do evil, it's not because we're being forced. We are the ones doing it. And that's true regardless of what state we're in. This natural liberty that the confession talks about here, it's what distinguishes you from a horse, among other things. It's what distinguishes you from a horse. And here the confession cites Deuteronomy 30, 19 where God says to Israel, I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, what? Choose life so that you and your offspring might live. God doesn't talk that way to horses. God doesn't appeal to stocks and stones to choose life because stocks and stones don't choose anything. If you drop a stone... Now hold, imagine I were holding this. I should have brought a stone for an illustration. But if I'm holding a stone and I drop it, it just falls. That's it. It's not pulled down to the earth by its own desire. It's just compelled by a necessity of nature. It's what rocks do. That's why we don't blame a stone 
for falling when we drop it. It's a stone. You're not a stone. I'm not a stone. Right? We are moral agents. And even when we speak of people being controlled by their sinful nature, it's not the same thing as a stone falling. And that's why the confession cites James chapter 1, verse 14, which says that each person is tempted when he is lured away and enticed by what? By his own desire. By his own desire. So James says, when we're being tempted to sin, we're being lured, dragged along. Not by necessity, but by our own desire. So for, so that, you're not a stone. But forget about stones for a moment. Think, think about animals. Think about animals. Like animals act upon instinct. Right? They don't have this natural liberty paragraph one's talking about. You watch one of these nature documentaries, and you, know, you watch the lion prey upon the gazelle, and then it rushes there, and then it tears it apart. We might be... We might be uh, sobered by that, but we don't call the police. We don't set the lion on trial for killing the gazelle. Right? It's not like he could help it. Right? It's not like the lion has a conscience. He doesn't have any law of God written upon his heart that says you shall love that gazelle as yourself. Not there. Right? Lions have a certain kind of freedom, I guess you could say, but it's a freedom to act upon instinct. Whereas as humans, we have a different kind of freedom a freedom to act rationally and to deliberate among options and choose the one that we prefer. That's why when we deliberately kill another human being, we do prosecute that person. We do, because he didn't have to do it. There may be motives, there may be reasons, but there are no excuses. And that's James's point. When we're being tempted to sin, don't blame God. Don't blame our circumstances. Don't blame other people. We're being lured and enticed by our own desire. So natural liberty, paragraph one, means freedom to do what you want without any natural necessity. Dry paper doesn't choose to burn when you light it with a match. Right? Dry paper doesn't burn on purpose. But if you set a building on fire on purpose... You'll be charged with arson if you get caught. Because you didn't have to set that building on fire. You can choose to respect other people's property. And that's actually the thing we should do, right? Because we're not animals. We're not paper. We're human beings made in the image of God. And among other things, that means that we are rational creatures with the ability to choose. Simple enough. Paragraph 1, general statement about free will. Free will in every state. But now the confession moves from the more general to the more specific. And from here on out, the free will that's being referred to here is a specific kind of free will. It's not just the free will to choose a college major or something like that. Right. What we're talking about here from here on out is the ability to do what is spiritually good and pleasing to God. That's what we're talking about. The ability to do what's spiritually good and pleasing to God. And the question now is, do human beings have the ability to do what is spiritually good and pleasing to God? Or are we, in fact, slaves to sin? Well, the answer is, it depends. It depends on what state you're in. So let's start with the first state that the confession mentions here. Free will in a state of innocence. And I, I think I left you. Did I leave blanks in this handout for anybody, or are they just all on there? Yeah. Free will in a state of innocence. Able to sin, 
and able not to sin. Able to sin and able not to sin. There's Latin phrases for all these, but I don't remember what they are. So if you go, go read R.C. Sproul, I'm sure he'll tell you. Paragraph 2 reads like this. Man in his state of innocency had freedom and power to will and to do that which was good and well-pleasing to God, but yet was unstable so that he might fall from it. So do human beings have the ability to do what's spiritually good and pleasing to God? Well, in a state of innocence, yeah. Yes. Adam and Eve, they were able to do what was good and pleasing to God. Now, in one sense, this might not seem that relevant for us since none of us has ever spent one second in this state of innocence. Adam and Eve were in it for like two hours or however long it was. But then Adam sinned and broke the covenant and he passed his sin on to all his descendants. We'll talk about that in a second. But for a little while at least, everything was very good. Very good. They had no sinful nature, no flesh. They weren't even going to die physically. And we sing the song that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Not Adam and Eve. They weren't prone to wander. But they were able to wander. Not prone, but they were able to wander. And wander they did. They were able to sin and able not to sin. Which leads us then to paragraph Free will in a state of sin. Not able not to sin. Not able not to sin or unable not to sin. It's a double negative. Paragraph 3 reads as follows. And after we're done with paragraph 3, I'll open it up for questions or comments. Paragraph 3 reads, Man, by his fall into a state of sin has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that which is good, and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto, that is, for conversion. We have to understand at this point that the state of innocence is gone And it's never coming back. You say, never? No, never. The state of glory that's coming is actually better than the state of innocence. But it's never coming back. But for now, and for now, every child of Adam is born in a state of sin. In the language of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, we are all children of wrath by nature. Or in the words of Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. It's common in our day for certain groups of people to point to their behavior or to their desires and to say, I was born this way. This is my orientation. Well, the Bible's actually been teaching that idea for over 3,000 years. We call it original sin. Right? Original sin is the idea that we're not born good or neutral or on the fence. right? We're born bent, bent away from God and towards sin. That's our spiritual orientation. We're born this way. The difference is simply that the Bible doesn't view our orientation as an excuse for sin, but rather 
as a sign of just how deep the problem really goes. Because sin, it doesn't begin with our actions. Right? What you see outwardly in yourself and in others and in your children, that's just the fruit. Right? This Sin has deep roots, deep in the heart. Sin comes as naturally to fallen man as breathing. In the words of Job 15, man drinks in iniquity like water. Different people may be oriented toward different sins, but we're all oriented toward sin. None of us is born oriented toward righteousness. Sin is, it can be strengthened. In fact, it is strengthened by all kinds of things. It's strengthened by practice. It's strengthened by habit. It's strengthened by bad examples. It's strengthened by bad teaching. It's strengthened by bad laws and customs in society. All those things. But sin itself comes naturally to men in a state of sin. That's why virtue has to be cultivated patiently like a crop. Right? By the sweat of your brow. Virtue takes hard work. Whereas you don't have to do anything to get vice. It just springs up like, just do nothing, and it'll spring up like weeds. Now, you can, you can sow it, we, and we all do. We all sow to our flesh, and we reap, reap corruption. But you don't even have to. The seeds are already there. It just springs up. And to be clear, just to be clear, there is a certain kind of virtue that can be cultivated even by unbelievers. Even by unbelievers. Right? The Bible has a category for what we call civic virtue or, or common grace. I, I told a guy when we were talking about this, I'd rather live next door to a bunch of Mormons than a bunch of cannibals. Right? At least I could sleep better at night with the Mormons next door. I'm not worried about getting eaten at night. Right? Total depravity doesn't mean that people have no choice over which sins they commit. And it doesn't even mean that non-Christians are as bad as they could possibly be or that they, that they don't have the ability to discipline themselves or break some bad habits. They do, but that's not what we're talking about here. Not what we're talking about. The question here is, do human beings have the ability to do what is spiritually good and pleasing in the sight of God? Do they have the ability to flip the switch and change their orientation from death to life? And the answer is, not if you're in a state of sin. And the Bible is painfully clear about this. And even if it weren't, we would know from our own experience that this is so. We could look at Ephesians 2, which talks about how apart from Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We could look at John 6, where Jesus says that no one can come to me. No one is able to believe in me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But perhaps the clearest passage on this for my money, is Romans chapter 8. If you would turn to Romans chapter 8 in your Bible, we'll look at verses 7 and 8. If you ever have a mind to memorize an entire chapter of the Bible, Romans 8 is a good candidate. I think J.I. Packer called it the rooftop of the whole Bible. But there's some hard things here too, and one of them is what we're about to read here. Romans 8, verses 7 and 8. And Paul's talking here about the mind that's set on the flesh. Like the man or the man, the mind of the man who's in a state of sin. And he says in verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile 
to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it, and what's that next word? Cannot. Cannot. Or if you NASB, it's not even able to do so. It's, it's not simply that the, the unsaved mind does not submit to God's law. It's that it cannot submit to God's law. And well, why not? Well, because the first half of the verse says that the mind on the flesh is hostile to God. Can anybody give me a synonym for hostile? Hostile? And we got a synonym or a definition? Combative. Combative? I'm surrounded by hostiles. <laughs> what, anything else? Combative? Enmity? Violently against? Antagonistic, yeah. Unfriendly? Right. Viewing them as your enemy? This is, this is our posture toward God. This is, this is the posture of man toward God in the state of sin. Opposed to God. Unfriendly toward God. Doesn't like God. Views God as the enemy. That's why. You can't submit to somebody when that's how you feel about them. And that's the posture, the orientation of your whole heart against them. So what we're talking about here, this isn't some physical disability. It's not that we're missing some gene or chromosome. And that's why we can't submit to God's law. Now, what we're missing in the state of sin is love, is faith, is honor, and submission. We just flat out don't like God. And that's why we can't submit to His law. And then for good measure, Paul repeats, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And that's why the great Methodist preacher John Wesley said that fallen man's free will is free only to evil. It's not that, just, it's not that we've lost that natural ability that paragraph one talks about. It's not that. It's simply that our choices don't just come out of nowhere. Right? Our will is tied to our heart. And in the state of sin, we have a stony heart, which is why we need a new heart. That's why Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We need a new heart. And thankfully, that's what the gospel gives us. And that's what this next paragraph is going to talk about. But before we do that, does anybody have any questions or comments or just things they'd like to share with the group? I'll quit talking for a minute. Brother Ben? It is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We will. We'll get there in just a second. But but it, but but to be just to be clear, yeah, it is sin. Yeah. What we do that looks like sin and smells like sin and actually it is still sin. Yeah. So. I, I would I would qualify that a little bit, but but all of our our best deeds are still imperfect. 
that much is uh, that much I would say is absolutely right. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah, bro. So just a bit of clarification. It almost sounds like your first point is correct. It almost seems like we have a given liberty uh, as operating on a, a, a hard choice of how to do it. Just to be clear, is that what you were saying? I mean, I would say, I think I, I think I would say we have liberty of a sense, even in spiritual things. It's simply that when it comes to things that are spiritually pleasing to God, we don't have we don't have the desire or the ability to break and override our desires for other things besides God, or for wanting even good things more than God, or for the wrong reason, or things like that. So. I would I would say that this this natural liberty in paragraph one it applies to all states, but the confession specifically narrows it to we're unable to do any spiritual good that's accompanying salvation. Right? It doesn't mean that a non-Christian can't kick the habit of smoking. Like we've all seen them do things like that, right? But it's in one sense it's like the confession. The, you read the chapter on good works in the confession. It has a it has a helpful statement about this where it talks about where it talks about, in one sense, all of the works of unbelievers are sin at some level. When you define, like, in one sense, a non-Christian is not uh, able to do good works in the full sense of the word, because good works have to be done for the right motive, to the glory of God, according to the right rule or the law of God, and for the right uh, purpose. I may be forgetting something, but for the glory of God and from a right motive. It isn't, whereas... If you just look at the outward action, the confession would, would agree non-believers can do things that are, that are good in the civic sense. Like, I'd, I'd rather live next door to a Mormon than a cannibal, right? But that doesn't mean that the Mormon's any likely to go to heaven when he dies, right, if he's not trusting in Christ. So, so yeah, there is a sense of which for the non-believer, you're... you're you're choosing sin. You're trading when you break a habit. You're trading one sin for another. It may be a maybe a better one, one that's better for you and for the world, but it's not getting you any closer to salvation. Does that make any sense? Okay. Paragraph, brother uh, Ben, go ahead. You'd like to hear me say that? <laughs> okay. We'll get there in just a second. Okay. It's in my notes. All right. Free uh, state of grace. Let's look at the state of grace right quick. Able to sin and able not to sin. So both of those things, in that sense, it is like it's basically the same as the state of innocence in the in the strict sense. Able to sin and able not to sin. Paragraph four says this. When God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace, he frees him from his natural bondage under sin and by his grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. Yet, and here's where the realism comes in, Ben. <laughs> yet, because of his remaining corruptions, he does not perfectly nor only will that which is good, but also wills that which is evil. So if you're a Christian, this is you. Able to sin and able not to sin. And both halves of this paragraph are very important for, for having a right view of the Christian life. 
On the one hand, if you don't realize as a Christian that you're able not to sin, then you will aim too low and end up making excuses for your sin. Like you'll be a defeatist. On the other hand, if you don't realize that as a Christian you still battle with indwelling sin, then you're going to have unrealistic expectations. You're going to aim too high and you're going to be disappointed. And you'll be a triumphalist. So, and we need to, so we need to avoid both defeatism and triumphalism. Right? Defeatist Christians need to be reminded that they're no longer in the state of sin. Triumphalist Christians need to be reminded that they're not yet in the state of glory. So both of those things are important. So let's consider both halves then of this, this paragraph, this statement. First, if you're a Christian, you are able not to sin. If you're still open to Romans 8, we just read the bad news in Romans 8, 7 and 8, how those who are in the flesh cannot please God, not even able to do so. But then the very next verse, verse 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In other words, verses 7 and 8 no longer describe you perfectly, at least. Right? Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the Spirit can. Hebrews 13, verse 16 says, Don't neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You can do stuff that's pleasing to God. Philippians 4.18, Paul says, I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent me, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. This is why I would say, I said a minute ago, brother, I would qualify the statement that I wouldn't want to tell you as Christians in the state of grace, everything you do for God is a filthy rag. That's not true. Everything you do is still imperfect and shot through with sin, but Scripture uses terms also, not just filthy rag, but if you're in Christ, fragrant offering. Fragrant offering. You can do stuff that's pleasing to God. Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Or John 8.34, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, but if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. So a lot of Christians somehow miss this. They somehow miss this. They talk about themselves as though they were still in a state of sin. As though the new birth had made absolutely no difference in their ability to do good and to please God. You give them a simple Bible command like, hey, be holy as, as God is holy. And they're like, I can't, I'm a sinner. You're like, okay. The Bible would say, okay, you're a sinner, so is everybody else who's ever lived. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Because if you're a Christian, Paul says you're a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. God's put His own Spirit in you to cause you to walk in His statutes and be careful to obey His rules. That's, what Ezekiel, that's how Ezekiel 36 describes the new covenant, the new heart. Like you've been brought from death to life. Romans 6, 13 and 14, Paul says, do not, this is a command, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but instead present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Why? For sin will have no dominion over you because you were not under law, 
but under grace. State of grace. If you're in a state of grace, you are able to please God. God is your father. And he doesn't just look at your efforts to please him, your imperfect efforts to please him, as a filthy rag. Any more than if my kid brings me a, a pencil drawing and I'm like, um, this is great, honey, what is it? And she's like, well, it's you, dad, and it's our house, and it's our yard, and our dog. Well, we don't have a dog, but this is, this is, this is us. And I'm, like, I'm not going to sit there and go, well, this is terrible. This looks nothing like me, for one thing. Look at me. Are you telling me that this is me here? I'm not going to do that. I'm going to put it on the fridge. And I'm going to be happy with it because I know she's wanting to please me. This is my, I'm, I'm her dad. Right? And that's how God is with us. The best of our works are pencil drawings, are crayon drawings. And God still says, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm going to reward you for your pencil drawing. Right? He doesn't always chide, nor does he keep his anger forever. So don't despair. Right? Don't be a defeatist. And for God's sake, stop making excuses. Right? If you're in a state of grace, you're able not to sin. But, but, lest we get ahead of ourselves, remember the other half of the paragraph. Notice the little word yet, and toward the middle of that paragraph four. Yet, yet, because of his remaining corruptions, he doesn't perfectly or only will that which is good, but also that which is evil. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. J.I. Packer almost committed suicide during his younger Christian life because he had been taught this unrealistic theology which told him that if he would just let go and let God, he would graduate to this higher plane of existence where he wouldn't have to battle with sin anymore. When that didn't happen, he was devastating. He almost killed himself. Till, till he discovered John Owen and J.C. Ryle. And he was like, okay, this is, this is more like it. This is actually what the Bible says. There's a good little book by Andy Nacelli called No Quick Fix. And this is what it's about. No Quick Fix. The only quick fix for holiness is the one we're going to experience in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. That'll be a really quick fix. But until then, it's a long obedience in the same direction. It's not easy, but it is possible because God is the one who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So able to sin and able not to sin. This is where Brother Ben um, asked. I would argue, even though the, the, both of these, a state of innocence and state of uh, grace, um, both of them are, are labeled as able to sin, able not to sin. I would argue that the state of grace that we're in right now is not obviously it's superior to the state of sin, right? That's pretty obvious. I would argue in some ways it's even better than the state of innocence. Anybody got any ideas why I might say that? That the state of grace that you're in right now as a Christian is even better than the state of innocence Adam and Eve are in? Yes, brother. Yes. There's a there was a lack of completeness and maturity. It's like it's like uh, being a full grown man is better than being a baby in the sense that that's just the goal, right? You're not supposed to stay a baby forever. Yeah, there's a maturity aspect. Yes, brother. Yeah, I mean, Adam knew God as his creator. I mean, he he had nothing but good, but he didn't know he didn't know Christ as his redeemer, right? So we've we've uh, we've experienced 
uh, in this, in one sense, you could say it's like if you've been married a long time and you have a happy marriage and you, you kind of look back at, you know, the, the early days of your marriage and you're like, we had a lot less sin between us. A lot fewer fights, a lot fewer unkind words said. In one sense, that it was a better marriage then. You know, if you, if you were to line up all the sins in two columns, oh, that was married two weeks was better than now. But we all know that's not the case, is it? Because there's all, there was lacking that experience, that maturity, that knowledge of each other that you gained over time. So I think there's some, something of that as well. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. That's right. Yeah, Adam hadn't been forgiven anything. And we've been forgiven a lot. And he who is forgiven much loves much. That's a, that's, I hadn't thought of that. That's, that's really good. The only other one I, could, I would think of would be to say, state of innocence is better than the state, I'm sorry, the state of grace is better than the state of innocence because according to the Bible, the state of grace can't be lost. I speak as a Reformed Baptist here. Uh, but I believe we're biblical on this. Uh, Adam was unstable. And with one sin, he plunged all of his descendants into a state of sin. But for those who are in Christ, Jesus says, I give to them eternal life, and they will never perish, nor will anyone snatch them out of my hand. John ten twenty eight. Those whom he justified, those he also glorified. Nothing lost. So if you're a Christian, you've got something that Adam didn't even have in his state of innocence. You have in your possession eternal life. Adam was basically told, do this and you will live. And he didn't do it. But what Adam didn't do, unstable as he was, God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to live the life we should have lived and die the death that we should have died. Such that whoever hears his word and believes it has eternal life already. And he will not pass into condemnation. As the old saying has it, grace is glory begun and glory is grace completed. So that's the state of grace. It licks the state of innocence hollow because it secures the state of glory. Which is then our last point. Paragraph 5. Free will in a state of glory, not able to sin. Not able to sin. Paragraph 5 is one sentence. This will of man is made perfectly and immutably free to good alone in the state of glory only. But the day is coming when we will no longer be able to sin. Hebrews 12, 23 speaks of those in heaven now as the spirits of the righteous made perfect. It's like that scene at the end of C.S. Lewis's The Silver Chair in the Chronicles of Narnia. Old Caspian has died and he's gone to Aslan's country and there he is now young again talking to Aslan. And Aslan is about to send Jill and Eustace back home to their own world. And Caspian says this to Aslan. He says, Sir, I've always wanted to have just one glimpse of their world. Is that wrong? Aslan says, you cannot want wrong things anymore now that you've died, my son. That's what the state of glory is going to be like. It's not just that you can't do wrong things. You can't even want wrong things. 
When you go home today, spend some time thinking about what, what's that going to be like? The day when Lewis says, we're finally rid of our false self with all of its, look at me, and aren't I a good boy, and all its posing and posturing and virtue signaling, and we're finally free to be humble. Lewis says to even get near it for a moment is like a drink of cold water to a man in the desert. And yet someday we're going to drink it from the fountain. Think about those happiest hours of your life, spiritually. Think about those times when your heart was so filled with the joy of the Lord and holiness seemed to come easy. And for however brief a time, you were able to get a glimpse of how happy your life could be if you didn't have to expend so much energy fighting against sin. Get that moment in your head and now imagine that's your whole life streaming forward forever and ever into eternity. Because that's what's coming. That's the state of glory. As surely as grace is the beginning of glory, glory is the end and the goal of grace. And that will be free will in its purest and best form. I mean, a lot of people think that by definition, free will means you have to be able to choose sin. It's not so. It's not, I'm glad it's not so. Right? If being able to sin is the ideal, then eternity is going to be less than ideal. Which is obviously ridiculous. Because ultimately, true freedom is not freedom to sin, but freedom from sin. Because sin isn't freedom, it's slavery. So being able to sin isn't necessarily bad. God did it and said it's very good back at the beginning. But it's not best. Being able to sin is not bad, but it's not best. The best is yet to come. And it'll be better than innocence. It'll be maturity. It'll be Eden perfected. Eden without the serpent. And the one who crushed the serpent will dwell with us as our God. And that will be true freedom indeed. Questions or comments from you? I got uh, 942. We got three minutes. Comments or questions from, from y'all? Did everybody feel like they got their questions answered from earlier that they, that they asked? And I said, we'll get to that. Okay. All right. Yes, brother. Yeah. I think I think that's fine. I think sometimes people who say that are making excuses that yeah, they shouldn't I, make. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what I was doing. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm, I'm yeah. Yeah. The issue Paul says, you know, in First uh, uh, Timothy one, I'm the chief of sinners, right? So he he's, he uses that language. Like there shouldn't be any um, any doubt about that. There's nothing wrong with saying I'm a sinner or saved by grace. Paul, I would, the flip side of that would be Paul also says things about himself that most of us would never say. Right? He talks about what a good example he is and how people should watch, look at him and watch him. Uh, yeah, there's things in the Psalms as well. And I'm like, if I heard somebody at prayer meeting saying this, I think, what kind of arrogant person is this? 
we should, but I'm, I don't think we should think that, but it's just the way we're, we're sort of wired to think. So no, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying we're sinners saved by grace, as long as we also understand we're also saints and dwell by the Holy Spirit who have been given, given the power and the ability to keep the commandments of the Lord. Again, it always requires this balancing out that I think the Bible and the confession give us that it's never going to be perfect. But when I, when I, but when I hear someone going on as though the question I would have for that person is, are you, are you talking about yourself as though regeneration weren't even a thing? If you are, then that's a problem. Um, yeah. So I, you don't, you don't want to, when someone is, when someone is down and in sin and they fall and you know, you don't want to just kick them with, you could have done better than this, you know, but, but you want to encourage them. Um, but we don't want to give ourselves too much, uh, too much liberty, you know, too much, or too much, uh, too much, too much of an excuse to just say, well, I'm a sinner, you know, well, yeah, but you're a saint too. And you've got the Holy Spirit and yeah, that makes sense. Is that good? Okay. 945. All right, let's pray and we'll do whatever y'all do next. Father, thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ. Thank you for the even greater liberty that's yet to come. And so, Father, I pray tonight, today that as the gospel is preached, that if anybody in this room is still in a state of sin, that you would use the gospel by the Spirit to set them free and, and help them to experience the glorious liberty of the children of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.